It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Good evening. Welcome into another edition of Meet Me at Your Mutual. I'm your host, Daniel Shopta at C70. Joining me this week, Jeff Jones. You know him at JM Jones on the Twitters. You've got him on the Belleville News Democrat, and he's covering the Cardinals uh, all the time. Uh, Jeff, how are you tonight? Uh, mostly dry, mostly not that cold. Listening to the wind kind of howl around here from down in my basement. Uh, just moved in November and have the whole little basement office set up for the first nice. time. And so this is the first uh, first chance I've gotten to enjoy the acoustics of the windows as the wind really whips through here. So it's it's a show almost going on here this evening. Yeah. If you get distracted, I will understand. Uh, yeah, it's if, fair. If you start thinking maybe there's a wolf at the door. Well, the, con- um, the concern might be I have my uh, – 
I, I keep very few of the giveaways, you know, so the, the giveaways they give to the ballpark, they run through the press box as well. Almost all of mine end up uh, in my mother's possession. I did keep my Adam Wainwright souvenir mini guitar, however, so uh, if that starts playing itself, then we'll know that something's really up here. It's gotten, gotten strong. That's yeah. That's true. So. Well, let's talk a little bit about last year. I know most of us don't want to because it was miserable, but uh, you know, I talked to Brendan Schaefer last week, and I know I've got a couple other media types as well, and I just kind of want to get – what it was like to have to cover something that was so out of the ordinary. I mean, you've been doing this for quite some time, but there's never been a season like this one for you to cover. Yeah, it was fairly unusual. Uh, even, even like even in the broader context of bad baseball seasons uh, for us to be, it, it to be pretty clear by round about the first week of May that they were just toast. You know, they were, they were, six weeks into the season and the season for all intents and purposes was over. There, there was not really, I think any reasonable doubt to that, even, even that early in the season. And so uh, it kind of became this weird, long and exorable March of, okay, well, they're clearly going to sell the deadline. And they did, they made, they did all the obvious seller type stuff. You know, we'll see what their turn looks like. Uh, early returns on the return seem pretty good. So that's fine. Uh, and, and then it just sort of became, the grind of day in day out of sort of having to balance, you know, who's going to be around today. Who's going to want to talk about this today. How many times can you ask the same guys, the same questions, you know, it, it's, I understand that, that, that fans want accountability uh, for, for that bad of a season. Certainly that's, you know, that, that, that's part of what folks with my job need to do. Uh, but, you know, there are only so many times that you can go to Paul Goldschmidt and say, boy, this is uh, this is no fun for you guys, huh? Because of course it's not, you know, and then there's not a lot that, that kind of gets illuminated uh, out of those conversations. And so, you know, when you kind of chopped it up into, well, okay, there's a novelty of how bad they were for a while. And then they went to London and then it was the trade deadline. Uh, and then it was just sort of playing out the string in those little segments. Uh, it, it was a little more digestible, but yeah, kind of, I don't, you know, from an overarching perspective, it really is sort of shocking how uh, how unusual most of last season was. Were there any play? And again, I know all the players were miserable. I, I have no doubt about that. But was there anybody that seemed to like take it harder, like maybe like almost too hard over this whole thing, or was there an ability to try to keep some sort of even keel for most players? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the easy answer here is no one Arenado, right? I, I think that, you know, the, I think the assumption that most people have about Nolan's frustrations about last season are correct. Uh, I'm not entirely sure that those are all directed the right way. I, I'm not sure that Nolan spent most of last summer plotting for ways to get out the door, but he definitely wore it. And you could definitely tell, and you could sort of see in the frustration uh, as the season wound down and they decided to shut him down with a couple weeks left in the year you know, you you could see that at that point it was sort of for everyone's interest to maybe just kind of back him down, ease him off, uh, and let him sail off into the offseason. Because, yeah, I mean, this is a guy who obviously, you know, sort of engineered a deal to get himself to St. Louis. Uh, had, you know, his first year in the team was was relatively successful. Second year, that's a team that, you know, has a has – a weird thing happened down the stretch. It ends up with kind of a more heartbreaking uh, loss in the postseason. And then all of a sudden, they're terrible in his third year in St. Louis. And so I think that he was definitely wearing that and and feeling that and dealing with a lot of those things uh, and kind of processing, you know, the reality of 
is this real or is this, you know, a blip, I guess, as we're calling it now. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, he was a person that had dealt with that right in Colorado a lot. And so, yeah, he probably thought he had left all that behind him. Um, There may be a little bit of an idea of, you know, (laughs) is this my fault? What am I doing wrong here? Um, But yeah, I'm sure that he had an idea that he was not going to ever have to do that again. So to run through that had to be miserable for a guy like that. Yeah, I mean, and that's the idea when you sort of force your way out of Colorado if you're no one, right, is that you're getting mm-hmm. into a situation where that shouldn't ever happen. And look, hadn't happened for 30 years in St. Louis. It had never been, you know, more than had never been that bad. And so right. uh, the the fact that it was so bad so quickly, I don't know. I, I, have, I have been sort of want, wondering about this, kind of pondering it over the, the last couple of weeks as spring training is getting closer and closer. If, if in some ways it was easier or at least less somehow less shocking to the system or, or less grading for that team to lose 91 games than if they had lost, say, 84 or 85 games, right? That, that sudden just like plunge into the abyss uh, is so shocking and so strange that maybe it makes it easier for them to write it off as an aberration than if it had just been a more gradual backslide into mediocrity that, that you know, maybe it would be harder to kind of describe it as having come out of nowhere. Yeah. And then I think and then we'll shift gears a little bit here. You know, as fans, we saw that 91 wins and you're right. It was so stark that it made it harder for the front office to kind of whitewash. Right. I mean, if, it, if they lose 82, 83, they can say we had injuries and this and that, and sure. it'll be fine. So I think that a lot of us expected, you know, very dramatic off season. And I'm not saying that it was a boring one by any chance, but it, it doesn't feel like, I don't know. It just doesn't feel like maybe the Cardinals front office took it as much of a wake up as they say they did. Well, I, I think there are, there are a couple things to consider there. I think number one, um, frankly, the market for Yamamoto blew up in a way that I don't mm-hmm. know that anybody was anticipating that the Cardinals certainly, I don't think we're anticipating. Mm-hmm. I think a year ago, uh, if you had told the Cardinals that Yamamoto was going to get three hundred million, they you're, you're crazy. There's no way. Uh, but that was you know that was what the market dictated, and and he found himself in a position where that was possible. Uh, and I think a guy who they were very interested in and very dialed in in on for a long time was very quickly beyond a place where they you know where they felt comfortable. Uh, and I think the other thing too is. You know, the more and more that we've heard Bill do it, the third talk, I know he's talking to, to John and Derek both in the last week, and we'll talk to Bill on Monday. Uh, it's it's very clear that, for better or worse, ownership views whatever uncertainty there is around the RSN situation as a limiter uh, on their ability to spend. And so, you know, it became a situation where however much the, maybe the front office would have liked to have had access to or however much the Cardinals in their wildest dream might have imagined sort of pouring in resource-wise for, you know, for free agency improvements, that maybe wasn't there in the way that they thought it was. And the trade market maybe hasn't developed in the way that they thought it might. And so, you know, this was, was really a large part of the reason why you saw them move as quickly as they did on the pitchers that they did. Uh, was that they they could not afford to get shut out. They had to come away with with guys, and so they had to move quickly to guarantee that they got some guys, even if not the guys that that maybe a lot of fans were hoping or even you know anticipating would be around. 
And, and that makes sense. I, and, and I get that for sure. I, I mean, we'll say that it feels like, and maybe you would know better than I, but just, you know, maybe it's cherry picking on my side of things, but it feels like, you know, they're talking in November and December about a payroll. Well, and probably more October, November about a payroll level of being back where they were going to be before the, you know, the trade deadline, you know, everybody's kind of thinking that one ninety. 200 range you know even you know uh, and and then to to suddenly now be like the the rsn's are is a big deal i don't know what has changed in the last couple of sure. months to especially because they should be uh, unless something has changed pretty much guaranteed that they're going to get their money for 2024 yeah i think they pretty well are you know i, I think to the extent that that the lawyers representing Diamond have been able to say much. Uh, the indication seems to be that the Cardinals are going to collect, if not their full payment, then very close to it. Frankly, in, in reading between the lines, it sort of sounds like uh, Bally is going to pay the rights fees long enough to keep as many Cardinals games as they can and then probably default in September when it comes time for blue season because the Blues are a loss leader and they're just going to they're going to bail out, right? Uh, that, that probably is roughly what's going to happen. So maybe the Cardinals miss a little bit though. If I recall correctly, I think that they're, I think that their rights payments are due pretty early in the season. Like I don't, I don't think, I don't think that they're still getting checks from the RSN, um, come September. So yeah, I mean, that's entirely fair. You're right that nothing really materially has changed. Now are things changing in places we can't see them in terms of them preparing to launch their own product and reclaim their own streaming rights and what have you. I'm sure that there are things happening uh, to that end. I can't imagine that they're very capital intensive and certainly not in a way that would affect payroll. Um, in terms of payroll, though, again, like when we talk about that number, the thing that we have to be very careful about is is sort of discussing the way, uh, the, the way in which you measure it. Because, you know, you talk right. about payroll getting up to a level in the low twos, they're there, arguably, depending on how you slice it. You know, I know that, no, obviously, if you slice it in the way that is maximally flattering to them, they're going to get the bigger number. But when you kind of look at the uh, the, the count that, that Fangraphs keeps for the 40-man roster that also includes uh, their deferments, that includes their buyouts, you know, payments coming in from other teams, uh, and also, crucially, their contributions to like the, the the fund for the pre-R players as well as player benefits, those last two are a significant chunk, somewhere in the realm of like 17 to 18 million bucks. And so the Cardinals right now today, as we look at them, you know, in the context of their 40-man payroll and, and that, that being the number which, which impacts whether you pay the CBT, the Cardinals are in the low two, just like a hair under 210. Uh, mm-hmm. With their forty-man payroll and and you know their 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 CBT number as it were, right? So they they kind of are there, and I I have I have no doubt that that will be the explanation uh, that we'll hear from John Mosellock probably tomorrow when he gets asked about payroll will be you know will be that, and I I do think there is an extent to which that is fair. To me, the question is why not just spend more? Why not just blow past the CBT number? Right? Like we, we know they're not going to, I asked him, I asked right. him that directly uh, at the winter meetings and he said that they would not go past the first CBT threshold. There does not to me seem to be a compelling reason why not to do that. Other than it's a lot more money to which I, who cares, right? It's not my money. What do I care? Uh, and if you're a fan, it's not yours either, but that's, you know, that's the way that they have done business for a long time. Uh, and, you know, we'll see, how willing slash eager they are to kind of update what that model looks like uh, for a team that was 
extremely bad last season. Do you think, and as you're talking about that, I agree, you know, I knew that they weren't going to get, I'm almost a little bit surprised they're as close as they are to the threshold. But do you think beyond the idea of not spending the extra money, you know, there's obviously, Bill DeWitt has, Junior Junior has a, a relationship with Rob Manfred, right? We know that, that he was part of that committee that put him on there. Yeah. Is there a an optics thing of wanting to make sure you stay under that cap because that's the idea of why they put the cap in there to start with and you know he as a quote quote you know industry leader he's trying to lead the way to say hey we're not going to hit that that level um i I don't it's an interesting way to think about it i'm not sure that there would be in that case at least not for the first threshold right like Mm -hmm. i can imagine you know if if something insane happened and bill all of a sudden was paying the cohen tax uh, maybe that would cause some folks to perk up and take notice. I think if the Cardinals were, you know, I think like Atlanta last year was just barely uh, a first threshold payer. I, the, you know, the Angels, I think someone famously uh, were like not paying Max Stassi while he was at home with his with his premature son to dip below the uh, the CBT number, which is just really classy stuff all around. Right. right. Uh, yeah, just, just great work, Hardy. Uh, <laughs> you know, if, if it was that kind of stuff, that's something else. But I mean, I think you are right to highlight Bill's relationship with Manfred uh, in the way that that does inform at least some of their decision making, because it does and that it, it is a part of it uh, when you kind of consider, you know, the way that they will or won't do business in, in some cases. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. And, and I think it's also fair to to give the, them some credit. You don't want them just spending to spend. And you're right. They went out and they got their guys that they needed to. And I feel like to some degree, I don't want to say they painted themselves into a corner, but we saw this a couple of years ago. Once they get five guys in the rotation under contract, they're very, very hesitant to try to go out and get another starter because they have they don't really want to dislodge somebody. So once they had Lynn and Gibson and then, of course, Sonny Gray under contract, kind of felt like that was it you know there there was nothing that was going to move those guys out yeah i think i think you're right about the guys that they signed i i will say that you know had the right trade uh sort of materialized or i guess if it still does though that seems increasingly unlikely by the day i think mm-hmm. that you could have seen steven matz get moved to the bullpen with relatively yeah. uh you know the relatively low stress or frankly you could see matz flipped in a deal like that, you know, there was, there was a decent amount of reporting on that early in the winter about, you know, his availability from the Cardinals perspective. And that didn't, that didn't surprise me at all. 
frankly, you know, if you're the White Sox and you're going to trade Dylan Cease, for instance, you're going to need somebody to start games. And so Stephen Matz being part of like a return there, that would make all the sense in the world to me. Uh, but no, no, I mean, I, I think that you're right in terms of the way that they kind of view those roster spots. You know, we had uh, kind of a, a big meeting with Mo in the lobby of the clubhouse uh, two, three weeks ahead of the trade deadline. You know, this was the big presser where he said, we're selling. This was this was the day uh, when Ryan Tapera showed up for three days and then was, was promptly dismissed. It was, that was all that same day. Uh, the Rick Hubble and, uh, uh, salute. Yeah, yeah. yeah. which, yeah, and it, I, that first day I went in and I introduced myself to Tapera in the clubhouse and said, you know, we got to get you upstairs next to the picture of Kamesh. And he goes, oh, yeah, we could do that. And he was DFA two days later. So well, we never did that, as it turns out. Um, but, no, I, you know, that day there was a conversation where someone asked him in retrospect, what could you have done to attract starters? You know, and, and, and the unspoken guy there was Quintana, right? Quintana was the guy who sort of fit them, who they knew, who they trusted, who didn't maybe have an obvious spot heading into the 23 season. Uh, and Mo kind of glibly goes, well, I guess I could have lied. Uh, but it's like, <laughs> yeah, you could have, that's correct. That was an option that was available for you, right? Like, you know, the idea that, that there is suddenly so much piety uh, in the way that they do business that perhaps being less than forthcoming, you know, obviously there are consequences. If you lie to free agents, that gets around. That's bad for your relationship with agents, et cetera, et cetera. But there are ways, you know, if not to lie, then to sell, right? There are there are things to do. And so the assumption that well, every free agent can see that we have five starters. Well, yeah, but the way that these guys are wired, every free agent thinks that they're better than all five guys that you have. And frankly, in the case of Jose Quintana heading into last season's Cardinals, he probably was correct about that. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't – maybe say Ron Comfrey, I guess. Uh, but no, so I, I think that there were there were more options available, but there are some there are some instances certainly in which the, uh, the hubris with which they conduct themselves does not necessarily work to their benefit. I think that's what was so surprising, at least to me, that they went and got Lance Lynn and Kyle Gibson, like, you know, almost immediately. And then they get, you want to raise the floor and you want to, you know, have that reliability. I, I understand that, but it's also, you've, you've painted yourself, right? I mean, you could have right. signed one of those guys, left a spot open and, you know, it's very possible, you know, maybe one of those guys survives for a while or, you know, you go in and you have Zach Thompson as a possibility, um, while leaving yourself a little bit of flexibility. I was just very surprised that they went and kind of wiped that off the board so quickly. Yeah, it, I, I was definitely surprised that it was both of those guys and not one, right? Uh, you know, their explanation has been that they that they thought if they waited that they might lose those guys. And maybe, I will say admittedly, if if, for example, they had moved on Gibson and waited on Lynn, I'm not mm-hmm. like all that certain that Lance Lynn flies off the board. Right, you know, a month before the winter meetings, but I, all I can say is, I suppose they have a better read of the market than I do, and so I have to defer to them to some extent. That that one doesn't necessarily pass the smell test to me. It frankly, uh, it sort of feels like with both of them that they had an offer out to both, and they both said yes at the same time, and they didn't feel like they could say no once they'd already made the offer. Is kind of what it feels like to me, but. Yep you know, that maybe that doesn't really reflective of the way that those things happen. I don't know. I mean, that, that would seem to be just about as reasonable as anything else, because, um, you know, hitting both of those guys before um, Thanksgiving and then to say, we didn't think they'd be there, you know, next week where 
we have seen a very, very slow moving market this year um, makes me feel like if they believe that maybe they didn't have quite the finger on the pulse of the market that they thought they did. But, you know, again, they should have more information than I, some idiot in the sitting over here doing a podcast does. So um, I would hope that they really did have a better idea and they did need to get these guys in. And there's no doubt that it has improved the team quite a bit to get them. It, it, it has. Um, and, you know, they definitely have raised that floor, which was definitely a necessity. Um, and, and that's, that's, all a plus but yeah it does sort of it does foreclose some roster possibilities and it does sort of take some of the bigger options off the table now you know were there are there free agent starters other than Yamamoto who maybe you would be willing to make the kind of commitment to that they had seen in free agency I I guess I guess what I would say is, and, and I, this is probably always true for me because I am generally kind of skeptical from the team's perspective, at least, of, of, of the value of a lot of free agency. I get it. I get why they would, you know, look around and be like, well, I don't know that we need to pay Michael Walker that kind of money. I That all makes sense to me. I, I totally get it. It doesn't necessarily inspire any more confidence or excitement in the guys that they got, but I do understand at least the perspective from which they got there. Talking about the uh, flexibility, and maybe that just kind of shifted into the bullpen, because I think a, a lot of us have been, I think it's been a really good, interesting way that they have approached the bullpen this offseason. Um, but I was very surprised that they went and got a Rule 5 guy um, after, you know, doing that last year. And obviously, Wilking Rodriguez didn't really play into this because of his injuries but to ha- to to go ahead and you know take away a little bit of that flexibility by getting another rule five guy it must have been very very high on ryan fernandez yeah i, I guess the thing to say about that for me is if it were me running a team i would always take a rule five guy the key is not like the key is not letting yourself fall in love with the rule five guy mm-hmm. and make bad choices based on wanting to keep him right i think i think taking the guy makes all the sense in the world i need to get the camp uh, and he's your 11th best reliever, eh, nothing venture, nothing gained, you know, whatever it costs you 10 grand or whatever the hell it is to, to claim the guy in the rule five. Uh, and then you just send him back to Boston or, you, you know, you work out a small trade or, you know, however you want to do it. I, to me, that makes sense. I, I think Fernandez is a really interesting profile for that uh, because he is not a guy who at first blush you look at and go, oh yeah, that's a guy who definitely is going to pitch in a major league bullpen next season, right? Like that's a guy you look at and go, oh, that's a guy who, uh, was a little old for level at double A and then went to triple A and did not pitch well. That to me, that to me is a guy who profiles as maybe somebody who was close to topping out at his level last season rather than a guy uh, who is part of your big league bullpen. But I, I have no doubt that when we get to spring, we're going to hear a lot about pitch shape and, and pitch design and the things that Fernandez does that they like. Uh, and, you know, look, you toss him on the pile with Riley O'Brien and Victor Santos and the other guys who were kind of on the bubble who they picked up this winter. And you hope that one of those guys works out. You know, I, I think that in, in, in the aggregate, if among those guys and Nick Robertson, you find one aggregated reliever who can replace what you got from Drew Verhagen last season, then you're in fine shape. And I think there is at least a reasonable chance that happens. <coughs> Excuse me. We saw the two trades this year that did, you know, clear one cleared out outfield two brought in um, a reliever. Did either one of those surprise you? It seemed to me, you know, Tyler O'Neill's market was not 
anything significant. And they, it feels like they probably did pretty well about selling high on Richard Palacios. Yeah. You know, I, 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 the funny thing to me is if at the start, if at the start of the winter you had just reversed which outfielder was in which trade, I would have not even blamed. But yeah, sure. They, they swapped our, you know, a roster redundancy for a gamble piece from Boston, uh, and they get more certainty for O'Neill. Now, you know, as it turned out, they got the gamble piece for O'Neill and they got the certainty for Palacios. Uh, but you basically you got out of those two guys what you would think you would get out of them. You know, as interesting and 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 look, believe me, you know, we talk about how terrible last season was. Richie Palacios from the middle of August through about the end of the season was every reporter's favorite player because nothing else. Richie was in a good mood and willing to talk every day. And let me tell you, that was not always the case with everybody in that clubhouse, right? Um, when you look at Richie, his numbers from 22 with Cleveland, where he did not look like a big league hitter uh, versus last year, he kind of just like ran in to six home runs last year. And, you know, Maybe you're a true believer and you think that Richie Palacios is a, is a 30 home run guy over a full season. I think that probably is not super likely. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think from an asset management perspective, now, you know, if he goes to Tampa and he's a 900 OPS outfielder, they're going to feel pretty stupid again. Uh, but I think from, you know, an asset management perspective, they got about as good as they could have hoped for out of Palacios. In terms of O'Neill, yeah, I mean, the value around the league was clearly just so low that Mo had to go out and say on the first day of the winter meetings to anyone who was listening, we are trying to trade Tyler O'Neill. Get your best offer in now, basically, right? Uh, and what he came up with was not a lot, I guess, depending on how much you like Nick Robertson and think that he is going to contribute. Uh, the only other thing I would add there, and, and I'm sure that we're going to get around to this, is again – the commonalities between the guys they added to the 40 man this winter from outside the organization, the death bullpen, every one of those guys is a high bloom guy. And that, that, that is so unlikely as to be beyond the point of being a reasonable coincidence to me that it is definitely worth tracking. And to me, Loki is far and away the most interesting threat of the off season is what appears to me at least to be his very obvious influence having asserted itself into roster construction let alone player development uh so early arguably even before he actually worked there yeah it it almost does feel like this was the interview process right (laughs) was you know give us some names and uh let's let's go get them and see how they work um it does i mean you're right this is the most uncardinal thing i think we've seen in the last little bit is to go outside and get a mind like Heim Bloom to even if they're not putting him in the direct chain of command as he's an advisor or, or whatever they're calling it now, um, still just having that extra somebody that has no relationship to the Cardinals at all to come in. I don't know that I ever really expected them to do that. They have been pretty insular for a long, long time. Yeah. I don't know that I would have expected it to happen um, while everyone else was still here, right? I, you know, after last season, I could have imagined if there had been a second negative season, I could imagine ownership kind of looking outside uh, for some for some baseball ops changes. But the fact that that, that Bloom was brought in, you know, part time though it is, and somewhat informal though it is, uh, but Mike Hirsch kept his job and Randy Flores kept his job. Like that, that to me says a lot about the way. I don't know. That to me will be a really interesting thing 
to monitor over the course of the season is whose influence appears to be sort of gaining strength and, and whose maybe is petering out a little bit uh, with the way that these voices change. And frankly, look, it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of days where the most interesting thing at the ballpark this summer might be to take attendance, right? Is, mm-hmm. is Heim here? Is Yachty here? Who's around and, and who's not? And, you know, what does it mean to be a part-time advisor? Because we hear that, you know, Bloom is going to be able to stay with his family and he's going to be able to still live in Boston. And that's all fine and good. If all of a sudden he is at Bush stadium for consecutive 10 game homestands, or if all of a sudden he is the executive traveling with the team on road trips, uh, that's going to be a very different look and is going to give a very different context to whatever his contributions are going to be. Yeah. Yeah. For You're right. I mean, to see how that develops over the year and then, yeah, what does that mean for, you know, Flores and, and Gersh? I, I, it feels like Gersh just kind of is in some sort of limbo in general, right? I mean, because there's this idea before High and Bloom gets hired that Randy Flores is kind of, you know, maybe the next guy to take John Mosellock's spot, but Gersh stays around and, and still, I'm sure, has much value to the organization. We just don't hear much about him. He does. And, and you know, I don't. All kidding aside, or maybe not all kidding aside, he has <laughs> arguably the best job in baseball, which is that he's got a really good title and he makes very good money. Uh, and his operational responsibilities do not maybe generate the kind of scrutiny uh, that you would typically expect for a guy who has that job. Like mm-hmm. he, 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 I promise, he does a lot every day. There is a lot that he does. In fact, most nights on an average night when we go down to the clubhouse and and, and we're sort of you know. We go in, we talk, at home at least, we go in, we talk to the manager, we basically follow him into the clubhouse, he goes into his office. More nights than not, it's Gersh in the office and not Mo. It's Mo sometimes, especially if there's like a roster move that needs to be made uh, or something, you know, dramatic happened in the game, Mo will definitely be around. But more often, it's it's Gersh and it's Jeremy Cohen and it's guys from that group kind of, you know, circling up with Ollie after post game. To, to dig through some stuff and it's it's Gersh on the phone in a lot of cases handling some parts of trade negotiations you know I, I think somewhat famously Gersh was the guy who who threw together the uh the, the Jordan Montgomery for Harrison Bader deal at the deadline in 22 that was a deal that he was very involved in and you know look it's like anything else right it, sometimes it's easier to deal with some folks and others. I don't think that anybody who has watched the Cardinals closely over the last two decades will be shocked to learn that maybe not everybody around baseball uh, gets along with Mo all that well. Uh, right. So you have a different voice. You put a different face on it and, and Gersh does some of that as well, but you know, that's a, that's a really good job and that's a really good position to be in. If you're him for now, how much does that change? What are his feelings about it? If all of a sudden, what looks like, you know, if nothing else, what looks like would have been a title bump for him if a guy like Bloom seems to be, you know, usurping feels like the wrong word, but if a guy like Bloom seems to be jumping the line on him, that will be interesting to see how that works out because there have been teams who have come into the Cardinals wanting to interview Gersh uh, for their head baseball ops jobs, you know, the Phillies and the Mets both, and he turned down the chance to interview with both and was plenty happy to stay in St. Louis. We'll see if that is still the case, you know, if, if the structure changes radically here over the next year or so. Yeah, I mean, the way you the way you're talking when you talk about it like that, it makes me flash back to what we had, you know, 
it, it's different, obviously, but it, it's still that idea of the the Jockety versus Ludow kind of split, right? That Mo wound up having to kind of split the difference and try to bring the two sides together when he took over as, as GM. Uh, obviously, these are coming at a different way. They're going to have a little bit more of a philosophical, you know, agreements than than those two sides do, but. It's still, you know, palace intrigue politics are always something interesting to watch. And frankly, there's there's nobody better positioned to know how to navigate that stuff than Mo, right? I, I think that, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, if you read Evan Drellick's book that came out last spring uh, yeah. about the Astros, there's a lot of good background in there about Luna's years of the Cardinals and the way that that all came out. And, you know, it's very clear from reading that that two things were true. Number one, uh, Bill believed in Jeff and and thought that the stuff that Jeff was selling was the right stuff. And number two, nobody else in the office could stand it. Uh, So Mo was smart enough to position himself basically, you know, with, with Jeff speaking into one ear and then him translating it for everyone else, uh, you know, kind of, kind of into the office and then just sort of naturally funneled that power structure through himself and, and, and became, that kind of go-between guy. And so it's not like he doesn't know how to work that game. The difference is going to be what does it look like when he's the guy orchestrating it, and I guess we're going to find out. What do you think – I mean, it obviously it depends on how this season goes, and, and I can't remember exactly, maybe next year too, but what do you think Mo does at the end of his contract? Does he get that kind of big-picture um, job in the organization that he thought he was getting with the Pobo um, – promotion or is it time to step away from baseball in general so when mo signed his extension uh at the end of or uh, during the spring training last year he talked about mm-hmm. wanting to have a succession plan in place uh and to sort of be stepped back from day to day by the end of the deal which is the end of next season the end of 25 so i don't have any reason to believe that that has changed the one thing that i that i think is really really connected here uh, is the development of the complex in Florida that's been delayed at least a year at this point. Uh, the Palm Beach County Commissioners, as I understand it, it, it just, it's been a mess trying to get them to actually cut the check. You know, there was some level of work that started and had to be stopped and maybe even reversed in some cases down at the complex in Florida uh, to get it back into working order. You know, there, when we left spring last year, the, the the explanation we got was well take a look around because next year this is none of this is going to be here it's going to be torn down to the lot spring training was going to be intense this year you know they, that, that was how that was all going to be played for one year uh, until the facility was built back up that is not the case the old buildings are still there and it's going to look pretty much the same uh, this year as it has in the last five years that I've been going down there so we'll see how long that lasts but the reason I mentioned it is because that was that's very much Moe's project. Like he's got his fingerprints all over that one. And he, he's got a lot of thought about it and, and spoke like really like amusingly wistfully last spring about how he was packing his office when he was down there last spring. Well, and guess what? Time to unpack it. Uh, (laughs) But in, in my mind, you know, hearing him talk about the complex refurbishment and talk about wanting to step back, it would, it made all the sense in the world to me that maybe he would sort of, if not retire, he would maybe transition down to being like Florida based full time and, and, and sort of ingratiate himself into uh, into that part of, of the world. I, I could have seen that being a move he would make. Now I don't know because, 
you know, if this team loses 90 games again this season, I, I Lord only knows what that transitional period looks like. Or if it's a bounce back and they win 90 games this season, does he all of a sudden feel like he needs to stick around a, to see it through and be to sort of, you know, bask in some of that glow as it gets worked out. And I, I, I don't know. And, and the mm. construction delays also are a thing. Like, does he need to be down there full time if they're, haven't even started the demo work yet, right? Like there are there are a lot of things that that change the way that looks, and 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 frankly, I'm going to be very eager, sort of throughout the season, to watch that evolve and and talk to him about how he's feeling about those projects and kind of his place in them as the year goes on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. We also know that Mo got a lot more help, at least according to the titles that were given out. Joe McEwing moves from the bench to a special uh, um, advisor role. And then, of course, Yadier Molina comes back on staff uh, after a year away. Um, What do you think we're going to see out of both of those? I know McEwing is kind of overseeing coaches and stuff like that, but what kind of impact are either one of those guys going to have this year? Um, I don't think that Joe McEwing is going to have much. I think that last year to get McEwing to, to come back and agree to be the bench coach, they had to sign him to a multi-year deal. Um, it was, look, it was a bad situation for McEwing to come into just in terms of it being last minute, not having a relationship with Ollie really, and kind of trying to piece it together. Um, he, he, I think did, a perfectly adequate job in that role, but I think it was clear as the season wore on that maybe it wasn't the level of, uh, whether it's trust or communication or just comfort, however you want to phrase like he wouldn't skip, right? That relationship with Ollie just didn't exist. Uh, And so it it was not at all a surprise to me that he got moved upstairs. I would would say that his role in an advisor is going to be mostly, you know, Hey, take a look at a couple of these advanced scouting reports. What do you think? I'm not. I don't think he's going to have a whole lot of input on the day to day. In terms of Yachty, that is, you know, that is a real, real big question because unless the Cardinals reverse course here, they're going to let Ali Marmol walk into the season as a lame duck manager, uh, and they're going to let him walk in as a lame duck manager with Yachty or Molina looming just enormous behind him, like with his shadow just cast over everything that happens at the end of the dugout. And, you know, we've, I've had conversations uh, with folks who cover the team about like, you know, how many games do they need to win of their first 20 to stop people from screaming for Yachty to take over? Mm -hmm. Like, is it like, is it like 13 of their first 20 do they need to win before anybody calms down? I don't know. 
Uh, I know the schedule is not real conducive to that. No, no. And and you know if if it's at the end of April, there's three games under 500. Boy, I wouldn't want to be Ali Marmol very much at that point because that's going to be just an impossible spot for him to be in. And look, everyone's going to say all the right things. You know, Ali was super involved in getting Yachty to come back, and he wants him back. What I mean, what's he going to say? Like, like what? What's you know? He's he's going to say no. Like what? Like what? What? What on earth is he going to say there? You know, Yachty is going to probably mostly not talk to us, but when he does, I'm sure he will say the right things about. I'm just here to learn and I'm here to contribute and I'm going to hear, you know, I'm here to help and blah, blah, blah. But he wants to manage. He's managing winter ball. He, he thinks he is ready to manage today and he is going to be around uh, one of the more vulnerable managers in baseball at the start of the season. And, and so, you know, they can do as much as they want to do to kind of tamp that down uh, and push it into the background, but that's, that's not going to go away. You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know the, the the place in the standings and the time of the season at which we stop wondering about when Yadier Molina is going to take over, but it's, you know, it's not in the first month, I don't think. Right. The, the Yadier situation is always, is, is interesting. Um, and I just wonder if the front office is able to not do that knee jerk of, of putting Yachty in that manager spot because, you know, there's not a manager. Well, Tony LaRusso walked off on his own, but pretty much there's not a manager that leaves on his own volition. And I don't know that the front office wants to get into a, you know, things are going bad. And so we have to get rid of Yachty or Molina type of situation. Or if the fan base, as much as they clamor for, for Yachty now wants to deal with, you know, him turning into Mike Matheny or something of that nature. Sure. So, I mean, those, those variables are interesting and I don't know how much they impact what the, what the front office wants to do. Well, what I'll, I'll say this, if, if this front office makes Yadier Molina the manager, they won't have to worry about being here when it's time to fire him because they, like that, they will have themselves been shuffled out in, in large quantity if that comes around, yeah. right? That's that would that would for the first time in a very long time for this team fall into the category of someone else's problem. Uh, <laughs> because if you make that move in the middle of the season, I maybe desperate is too strong, but I don't know that it's much too strong. Mm-hmm. Is, were you a little bit surprised that? They didn't just go ahead and put Yachty then as uh, the bench coach, or is this no. a situation where Yachty doesn't necessarily, as much as he wants to manage, is not necessarily really sure about 162 yet? I I think that Yachty is not sure about 162 if he's not the manager. I hmm. think that I think that when you consider the sort of the salary that a major league coach makes, well, here's here's and this was. This was a really good learning, uh, a really good learning experience for me as well last summer because I think I had some assumptions myself about coaching salaries. Uh, Dan Nicolaisen was on the big league staff last season, left the big league staff to go be an assistant softball coach at Ole Miss, and as I understand it, got a raise, like a substantial yeah. one, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so this, you know, the bench coach is obviously a couple notches up from that, and, and Yadier Molina is Yadier Molina. All that being said, whatever family issues there are that preclude him from being like the bullpen coach for 162 games, I bet those get solved in a big hurry 
if he gets to be the manager for 162 games. I got a pretty strong feeling yeah. uh, that that would be the case. So, I mean, so short answer, no, it didn't surprise me that he didn't end up in that kind of full-time uh, role, at least to start the season. The other part of that, frankly, is that, you know, he has a lot more flexibility this way to kind of learn the stuff that he wants to learn. Like, are any of us going to be surprised if we look up in April and, hey, Yachty is managing Palm Beach for three games over a weekend, right? I don't think any of us are. I think that, that would be something that I would I can totally see happening. And, and in fact, I actually, I wrote um, in my, you know, in my big predictions for the year column, I, I wrote that I predict that Yadier Molina will manage one game at least for the Cardinals this season. If, if setting aside everything else, like sometimes the manager gets kicked out and gets suspended for a couple of games, or sometimes the guy's got the flu or, you know, whatever. I think Ali has missed two or three games in each of his first two seasons. My prediction is that on those days that it's Yadier Molina who gets the call, assuming that he's in a place where that's possible. Because, like, yeah, Daniel Descalso is the bench coach, but he has no managerial experience either. There's no one in that dugout who has big league managerial experience. And, you know, the closest would be Stubby, who's got AAA managerial experience. Pop, I don't, Pop never managed Memphis. I think he stopped at Springfield, right? Maybe not. Maybe he was Memphis. Yeah, I think. Uh, in any event, like, it's not like there is a very obvious person to take over outside of Yadier Molina for a game or two. And that would that would not surprise me to see that happen in the least. Might even get it at one of those split squad games in spring training too. I think that is extremely likely. Fast, yeah, that'll that'll get people stirred up, stirred up for sure. Oh yeah. Um. So today's news, as we get closer to the end of of our show, today's news: the Cardinals um, settle with everybody that was going to arbitration except Tommy Edmond. Let's set Tommy aside for just a second, but. You know, some of those contracts that they settled for came in a little higher than projections. Was there anybody that surprised you at, at what level that they got their contract or, or they agreed to? Um, Helsley came in pretty high. I was surprised that the team settled as high as they did. You know, I, I, th- I think the, the MLB trade rumors projection was like three or three one uh, and he ended up getting three eight. That's a that's a pretty big commitment uh, by the by the team to Helsley. And, and in fact, it is substantial enough that it makes me wonder uh, if that does not perhaps end up being in an area where they look for an extension. Maybe, you know, maybe they buy this year. They kind of, I think they did this with Gallegos, right? They signed an extension that bought basically his, his first two years of free agency or his first year plus an option year. I think Helsley is probably a higher ceiling than that, and it's going to cost them more uh, than Gallegos did when they did that deal, but it wouldn't shock me if they kind of looked in that direction. Otherwise, no. I mean, I think that, like, John King got like five grand when his projection. I think Kittredge missed his by like seventy five thousand. These were all like pretty, pretty close to the pen. Dylan Carlson, I guess, was half a million over. Um, that you know, good for Dylan, I guess. I he, that argument would probably be fairly simple for them to lose in a hearing because he would be just about the only guy on the roster who actually has experience playing a lot of experience at least playing center field in the big leagues. Uh, so you know, pretty easy to make a case to a neutral arbitrator that he uh, is essential to the team's success, whether or not he actually is. Also, I mean, I don't know that it makes any impact, but Helsley obviously had a very negative experience with arbitration last year. And I don't know if the Cardinals kind of wanted to smooth some feathers, uh, perhaps uh, making sure that they didn't have to worry about this year. I, I I think the settlement with Helsley and at the number that it was, 
is is probably suggestive of wanting to fix whatever last year broke. And also, uh, I believe also that, that, that Helsley has changed agencies as well since that happened, mm-hmm. too. So. Yeah. And then, you know, there's another year under its belt, a little bit healthier year. Um, so there's a lot of things that go in there. Okay. So Tommy Edmund then is what it's less than 500,000 between him and the Cardinals. And yet they couldn't come to terms. And given the way the Cardinals are doing things as of late, um, looks like we'll be talking about a trial in what, you know, a month or a little bit. Yeah. Um, it seems a little bit strange for the Cardinals not to, you know, not to some come to some sort of agreement with a guy that honestly, it feels like they have almost sometimes overvalued over the course of his career. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think it is interesting that they let themselves to get here. Um, you know, the thing that I, that I noted, and I, I just sort of, you know, countered myself just a minute ago talking about Helsley. This, this leadership team, this baseball ops group has never extended a player with whom they went to a hearing beyond team control. Everybody who they've gone to a hearing with, uh, so Waka, Flaherty, Henesis, Cabrera, Tyler O'Neill. Helsley last year, I got obviously his TBD, and then Tommy Edmund, we assume this year. The other, you know, the other four guys who they went to hearings with were all gone at the end of their at the end of their six years of team control. All of them. Mm-hmm. So we'll see what that looks like for Edmund, um, you know, and for Helsley as well, I guess. It's I, I, the gap between them, I think, is 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 four nine five. Um so it's it's a decent chunk of money, but you're right. Like it's not enough that you would think they would be willing to sort of drag him through. I do think that if you're the Cardinals, maybe you can have some confidence that Tommy Edmund is a guy who is not going to be maybe as impacted by the process as other guys were. Not that, that should probably be informing your strategy uh, negotiation wise, but I guess from a fan perspective, I wouldn't worry about Edmund being so like torn up about the uh, about the hearing that it impacts him on the field. But I, I do think it's notable, yeah, that they're willing to to kind of go to the mat on this one. And I'll again, I'll be interested to see what that looks like. You know, when you kind of consider the way that these arbitration hearings work, and, and very often the arbitrators have little to no knowledge of baseball. Uh, the folks that are hearing these, right, and right. you kind of you kind of hold up what Tommy Edmund has done at the plate in the last couple of seasons, and it's not. Not easy to, or not 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 hard, I guess, to, to imagine him losing that hearing. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, I think that's that's very true. And you know, again, to get to your point that you've you know the idea that they're not necessarily going to extend him beyond this year. I mean, there are a lot of middle infielders coming up, and there are. you know, I guess it depends on how how much they want to you know Dylan Carlson to play center field. But um, yeah, I, I feel like he's in a pretty tentative position. It's just a little bit surprising that that they felt that way as well and felt he's, like they got some there. Yeah, I mean he's at a very interesting like turning point in his career in that he is absolutely essential to the creation of their roster this season and could be absolutely redundant as quickly as next season. Right? Because you you have to hold Edmund through the winter because if if Mason Wynn gets to spring uh and the bat is not there as much as you need it to be there then Tommy Edmund has to be your shortstop. But conversely, a year from now, if Mason Wynn was in the top three in rookie of the year voting and Victor Scott is pounding down the door, then you probably don't need Edmund like at all. 
Uh, and, and you know, and so right. that that changes in a hurry. Yeah, it is, you're right. It's, it's kind of kind of an interesting time for for Tommy. Um, okay, so winter warm up is this weekend. What's that like for you? Do you get much out of it, or is this just kind of uh, more for the fans? And you, you know, you'll get your stuff in spring training. So I I do get some things out of it. Crucially, this year uh, because of the way that the things kind of broke down. With the signings, I have not gotten a chance uh, to meet. I've, I've met Sonny Gray briefly. I've met Lance Wynn a little more, but, but not a lot. But I haven't got a chance to meet either of them since they signed with the Cardinals. And so it's a chance at least to talk to them. Um, that's important. I've never met like Thomas to JC. So I'm looking forward to meeting him uh, and, and you know learning a little more about him. Um, this is one of the very rare occasions throughout the year. There are usually two or three. Uh, where we get to ask questions of the DeWitts. That's usually pretty important. Um, so, you know, that is that is a big centerpiece of the weekend for me. Otherwise, yeah, I mean, it's 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 mostly fan centered, you know, and that's and that's fine. That's exciting. You know, there's a there's going to be a panel, uh, I believe, on Monday where I think it's me and Katie and John Denton and Derek will will we'll talk to fans about what it's like to cover the team day by day. And in fact, you might even get a uh, you'll get a really good up close and personal view of that because we're going to all bail out halfway through to go talk to Lance Lynn, uh, whose availability <laughs> is scheduled on top of that panel. So, so, you know, you'll, you'll get a, you'll get a, you'll get a real experience of, of what that actually does look like, but no, you know, it's, it's, it, it is valuable for me mentally in that it is a kickoff to the year and therefore the season and kind of gets my brain in the right place. And also look, sometimes, uh, sometimes things happen that are newsworthy. Sometimes Justin Williams shows up in the cast because he punched right. his TV, you know, and then, and, and things have happened. So who knows, you know, you never, you never know who's going to show up in a cast to win the warm up. Well, if it wasn't for, you know, what last week, he might've been Tommy Edmund, right? Exactly. Uh, right. Know. We got, we got, we got out ahead of that one. So, yeah. So yeah, that's a, uh... It's going to be interesting. Um, I just wondered because I, I know that it's kind of a, you know, a short availability. You don't really necessarily sometimes get that, you know, the real in-depth conversations that you probably no, can. I mean, times. you don't, but and the other thing too, because like, the Cardinals, um, the Cardinals PR department was kind enough to sort of send over um, the schedule for the weekend this afternoon. So we can kind of plan it out. It feels a little thin uh, compared hmm. to years past. I'm not going to lie. Like, there's a, there's a stretch tomorrow, I believe, that so we have – I'm looking at the schedule now. Uh, our first availability of the day tomorrow is Mo, and he's at 1030, and there's no one else until Sunny Gray at 1230. So it's not, you know, it's not like jam-packed. Like my, the day tomorrow is Mo Zalock, uh, Sunny Gray, Tink Hintz, James Nail, Alec Burleson, Sajacy, Drew Rahm, Luke and Baker, Sim Roberts, and Buddy Kennedy. So, like, you know – not a not a lot of like real real hard digging to do uh, right. tomorrow, but look, it's it's a good time. People enjoy it. God knows that you know fans absolutely love it uh, and 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 have a ball with it. So I'm glad it exists. If for no other reason, it helps kind of get the gets the muscles moving and get and get yeah. the kind of the, the gears moving in the right direction again. Yeah, that's all. What didn't I see? That's what I know. Nolan's not going to be there. Paul Goldschmidt's not going to be he there. He is not. He is not. Uh, and Miles uh, Michaelis is also not going to yeah. be there. Yeah. So that's uh, those are some some pretty good chunks of, of people not to be there. Prior prior engagements were told. 
uh, in that they discovered prior that it, it was going to be 80 degrees in Florida and not <laughs> that here. Not that here. That that <laughs> will do it. The, quite the, well. the prior the prior engagement was that in prior years they came to this engagement and decided that they would not be recruited. No, I, I'm sure they actually have stuff going on. I you know this is not like the time that Albert said that his plane was broken or something and actually he was at somebody's birthday party. <laughs> well, and I know how many times Yachty seems to have had a trouble. To, You're to right. You never. You well, just. So. You can just never trust those commercial airline flights from Wildwood. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So maybe that's a some that maybe maybe Yachty needs to think about that if he's going to be manager. He may have to that's, factor that. And in. that believe me when I when I tell you the, the the number of of not joking jokes that we've already had, you know, about the pregame and postgame avails with manager Yachty every day. Of, <laughs> oh boy, that, that 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 would be interesting. Um, and then. What uh, pitchers and catchers report on the fourteenth? On Valentine's there Day, right about that time. Yep, I think uh, I'll get down there in the Sunday before, which is the eleventh or twelfth, whatever that is. I think it's yeah, I think it's I think it's the Sunday. It might actually last year it was the day of the Super Bowl. This year it might be the day. I don't know. I don't. I don't usually watch the Super Bowl, so I couldn't tell you. Uh, but Fair it's enough. somewhere right yeah. around there. Okay. And, and does it does it depend on how cold St. Louis is getting? And then maybe you get out of town a, a day or two earlier if it's getting no, I, negative I, two? My, my grand spring training tradition is to take two days to drive on the way down and then drive it all the way back uh, on one day. So it's oof. it's eight to Atlanta, eight from Atlanta to Jupiter. So that's a, that's a, that is a tough two days, but very doable. Uh, the one day on the, on the way back, I'm usually very eager to get home. And so I – you know, we floored at three in the morning Eastern time like a moron and drive like a bat out of hell for sixteen hours and get myself get myself back in my bed. So does that mean you're not going to Arizona this year this year? I I am not. So I, I will okay. be in LA and San Diego for the first week of the season, but I'm going to be missing the uh, the stopover in Mesa. We'll not be there for that. Okay. Is there anything that you're looking forward to? in spring either anybody to really you know really get into talking to or just to be able to see the the dynamics of yeah i, I think for me the most interesting guy to watch in spring is going to be thomas jc right like i, I really i want to see where he establishes himself uh on the depth chart and and what kind of presence he has in spring if it's a situation where you know, is he a guy who is going to make an appearance? Is, is he is he going to get into the fourth or fifth inning of every spring training game uh, and play a ton? Or is he a guy who we're going to see sparingly before he gets sent off to minor league camp and minor league camp opens? And we don't see a lot of him uh, in, in terms of exposure. That, to me, will tell us a lot about what his path kind of looks like going into this season and whether or not they believe he's a guy who legitimately could play in the big leagues this year, or if that maybe is a year or so off that, that is a guy who, you know, who really jumps out to me. Uh, and, you know, also I, to see how the bullpen ends up being constructed because there are, there's a, there are a litany of arms. There are, you know, there's going to be 12, 15 guys that come into camp. I was looking at the, uh, when they published the list of, of, uh, of, of non-roster invitees the other day, most years, there are guys on that list where you're going, yeah, that guy's not going to pitch in the big league this season. I don't, you know, I don't really need to carve out time to go right. uh, to go watch this guy's bullpen. That's fine. But like, legitimately, every pitcher on that list is a pitcher who I will want to watch during spring. Like, as you know, as I get on the list, how quickly can I find it? Oh, there it is. 
So the list of the list of non-roster pitchers: Graceffo, Granillo, Hence, Jerpy, Kyle Leahy, Loudis, McGreevy, Packy Naughton, Rajik, uh, Takoa Roby, Wilkin Rodriguez, Victor Santos, Logan Sawyer, Connor Thomas. Now there are guys in that list who I've seen in springs past, you know, Leahy and and, and Connor Thomas and, and guys who Packy guys who have a pretty good idea of what that looks like. But those are all guys who you could conceivably see in the big leagues at some point. And the rest of those guys, like those are some really interesting names who populate kind of the top of their prospect list. And so I'll be really interested to watch those guys pitch their way through spring. Uh, Speaking of Packy, you're going to have to ask him why after two years, He's changing uniform numbers from seventy. I, I'm 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 very offended by this. By I, the way, I think it's funny that he, you know, he dragged it out for two years, kept the seventy, gets outrighted, and that's when he decides he's <laughs> going to speak up and, and get back into the major league number. You know, maybe it's maybe it's one of these things where he's kind of projecting, right? Where he's like, all right, if I if I pick a big league number for myself, then we're going to, you know, he feels like he can make it happen a little more that way. Maybe so, maybe so, but uh, yeah, it it hurt me because now I got to find out who's the next. Uh, Next patron pitcher, because it's always a pitcher that has 70. Um, very, very rarely not. Um, all right. Well, looking forward to it. Uh, looking forward to seeing what you've got this weekend. And um, I just appreciate you joining me. It's been a, a fun time. I'm always happy to do it. I'm sorry I messed up our uh, our, our annual appointment here. But uh, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, I fortunately had the chance to go check out Sweeney Todd on Broadway last weekend. So I was a little otherwise engaged. I would recommend, but uh, we, as we sit here, I think that Josh Groban and Emily Ashford only have like three shows remaining before they get cycled out. So, well worth the trip for me. Uh, yeah, if you didn't see enough bloodletting last year, <laughs> you get to go do there. It do is it again there. All right, the Jeff, appreciate it. <laughs> there you go. Uh, appreciate it very much, and uh, look forward to to talking to you later on. Yeah, man, anytime. Um, next week, uh, we have Matt Pauly coming in from uh, KMOX. Uh, but until then, for Jeff, I'm Daniel. Good night. He hits it in the air to left field. Back is Chavez. At the wall, this ball is gone. Two-run home run, Yadier Molina. And St. Louis takes a 3-1 to ninth inning game seven lead.